Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Practitioners, especially men of what they call ethical non-monogamy, have been socialized away from communication, and they have been socialized away from talking about feelings and being, and that's unethical too. Welcome back to Open Late Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Spandiari, and I am bringing you part two of my interview with Dr. Wednesday Martin. Today, we're going to be talking about the reality of menopause. Yeah, we're going to shift gears. We're also going to uncover the impact of language on emotions and learning and why some language we don't even realize we're using in the space of non-monogamy can be harmful and exclusive. So without further ado, Let's go to part two. Yeah, I but I do want to, with our time today, dive a bit more into, you know, what all of this means for us. And we could, you know, talk yes. about the research of, of primatology and biology, right? But also you've interviewed so many people on their own experiences, right? Relationships, without relationships, with infidelity, with mm. um, you know, being on both ends of infidelity. And I think, so one of the things I found most fascinating in your book and your work is how um, the science behind the different ways that men and women actually get turned on and how men have a very straightforward turn on or arousal and that women have this more like nuanced way of being. Yeah. Circular. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, And how like the world that we live in has very much been painted for the container of what the of what a male or the masculine would find sexy. And so mm-hmm. it's really hard to measure sex and sexual satisfaction when the scales are different. And it, it really I would is. Love, yeah. I would love to get into that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, until relatively recently, we had one model of uh, sexual desire and it was a linear model and it went from <coughs> excuse me arousal to desire to orgasm in a straight line and that's called the masters and johnson model but thanks to a woman uh sex therapist named rosemary basson we learned that desire is more complicated for both men and women Uh, than we thought it was, that it's not just a linear process. How did we come up with this huge revolutionary insight about desire? Rosemary Basson had been taught that men were more sexual than women, that men were more easily aroused because they had stronger libidos and that monogamy was harder for them because they had stronger libidos. And she said, well, this isn't what I'm hearing in my practice. I am hearing women describing arousal and desire, but it's a more circular model than this linear model we've been talking about. Okay. So she said, let's call the linear model spontaneous desire. And let's call the circular model responsive desire. And responsive desire means 
what well, yeah, you're not really maybe you're not really into it but then somebody touches you just so and all of a sudden you're like ooh i'm really interested now or you um you know see your girlfriend's sunglasses and you're like oh gosh i had such a hot time with her she left her sunglasses you're like i really need to masturbate now right so that you're responding the other model was that you felt arousal and then you felt desire and then you were off to the races. Now, when we only measure spontaneous desire, men are up here and women are down here. But Rosemary Basson said, let's start measuring responsive desire. And then Meredith Chivers, one of my favorite sex researchers, developed an instrument for measuring responsive desire. And now we see the male and female libido in humans like this. And uh, as Lisa Diamond, another sex researcher pointed out to me, you know, some women experience bumps in their desire who are of reproductive age. They experience bumps in desire around ovulation and their period. So sometimes uh, a clit haver's desire might be up here and a penis haver's is down here. Why is it so important to get this information out? I cannot tell you, Jessica, how many women I interviewed who said, wait, there's something, I'm, I'm like a guy. I was like, what makes you like a guy? I really love sex. Okay, honey, I have news for you. You're just a normal human woman being a normal human woman. What you're saying is I feel freaky that the forms of constraint and control all around me can't even stop me. Of course they can't. The software is in there, honey. So it's really important also because so many men have said to me like, oh my God, I just can't get hard and it's so embarrassing and I'm so ashamed. And women will say, oh my God, you know, I, there's something wrong with me. My sex drive is so much higher than my girlfriends or my boyfriends, my partners. And then a guy, a penis haver will say, oh my God, I don't know. I'm just not hard all the time. You can't just like take me down off the shelf and I'm a, an ever ready uh, fuck bunny. And I'm supposed to be. And I'm like, no, no, you're not. Uh, men have feelings. Men experience stress. Uh, men feel, uh, you know, vulnerable and scared about sex sometimes. Um, and so it's no wonder that, that, you know, there's a whole range of desire styles and of Libido, and it's very changeable. So we're harming everyone when we say, oh, yeah, men, they're just randy dogs. They just want to do it all the time. And like women are coy and choosy and reticent. No, no, that is old, dumb thing. Stop it now. And Rosemary yeah. Basson helped us understand, you know, what desire really is. Again, we needed more women in sexual science uh, to help us understand the reality, yeah. not, just of, not just of clit havers, but of penis havers. And there's a great book um, called Not Always in the Mood, which is one of my favorite uh, books about just leave men alone. They're not always in the mood. Uh, have some compassion for penis havers. Yeah, I love that. I wrote it down. I've never heard it before. Yeah, um, not always in the mood. Love it. There's so much here. There's so like hearing you speak about this, even though these are things that like I've read and I've followed you, just like hearing you talk about it still, it's so empowering as a woman who like 
you know, has had a big, what I thought like, oh, I have a big sexual appetite. And then to, to learn that that's normal. And also to be reminded that the misinformation that we share is so damaging and disempowering, not just to women, but to everyone. Right. To everyone, right. Everybody suffers when we subscribe to inaccurate, outmoded, dated science and attitudes about sexuality that are not evidence-based. And I want to say about you, you know, the bravery to, um, you know, be real about your libido and about which relationship container works for you. Um, You know, that is an act of bravery and not everybody can do it. And this is why I hate the term ethical non-monogamy and I literally never use it. It's just, I'm an anthropologist. My background is anthropology. I have to, I look at sexuality as intimately linked to our ecology. So I say female sexuality happens at the intersection of the clitoris and the culture, right? So you and I are very fortunate. We're not more ethical than other people. We're fucking lucky is what we are. And we live in a culture where we can say, listen, monogamy is not working for me. It doesn't seem like it's working for us. Let's, let's do something about this. And we won't get killed for it. Right. Not every woman is so lucky. Many women who said that would be shot in the face. And it's really mm-hmm. important that people who bandy around the term ethical non-monogamy, you guys, come up with another term. You are not more ethical than the woman who would experience violence or even lethal violence for being non-monogamous. You are not more ethical than a woman who uses a, what we call in anthropology a bridging uh, strategy where she continues to garner benefits from one relationship while testing out another relationship that might be physically safer, economically better for her. And she has uh, dependent children and, you know, she doesn't have a job because she has a controlling partner or the economy is bad and she's bridging. She's using a bridging strategy and trying to figure out if she should bridge to another partner. You're not more ethical than she is. You're luckier. We're lucky we live in Brooklyn mm -hmm. and Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco, if you live, Austin, if you live in one of these places, spare me your ethical bullshit and have some compassion for people who are not as privileged as you are and stop calling yourself ethical because when you do it, you're saying that they're unethical. And I know people are going to say, whatever, come up with better words, open non-monogamy, disclose non-monogamy. And then for people who aren't doing it, Covert non-monogamy, okay? Mm-hmm. Hidden non-monogamy, whatever. Stop calling it ethical and unethical. By the way, I want to say something about people who practice what they call ethical non-monogamy. The number of stories I have heard about people who call themselves ethically non-monogamous, who don't disclose their STI status, uh, or who just are doing it like um, to build a harem, right? And this is a lot of wealthy men do this. Uh, they say they're ethically, really? You're, you're doing all these retrograde uh, things gender-wise and, and you're ethical? I don't think you are. Uh, you're not disclosing your STI status. I don't think you're ethical. Um, you're not communicating clearly with your partner, which happens a lot in quote, ethical, unquote, non-monogamy. Um, a lot of 
practitioners, especially men of what they call ethical non-monogamy, have been socialized away from communication and they have been socialized away from talking about feelings and being, and that's unethical too. If you are not working a rigorous program about yourself, don't call your, and, and you're subjecting other people to your stuff and you're not actively, don't call yourself ethical for that reason as well. So I have many reasons why I don't like the term ethical non-monogamy. It makes people very mad, tough, come up with better words. I love it. I Thank you. Preach. Thank you for the lesson in this. It's so interesting because we, we have a dictionary and it's like a really adorable dictionary. If you guys don't have it, it's a free download, but I it's essentially it. a dictionary of terms. No, no, it's free. Oh. <laughs> but it has stick figures to like demonstrate these terms that, you know, it's like a lot of non-traditional relational terms, right? And in it, I actually wrote like, and maybe I heard this from you or wh- whoever I heard it from first, probably you actually. Um, there's the there's ENM and then CNM. And I write like the use of this term for me also implies that non-monogamy is inherently unethical. And so we shouldn't use that. And consensual is maybe a better one or whatever you said, go find Mm -hmm. your own. I love open monogamy, but you were making me laugh so much. And I just have to say this. (laughs) I, it makes me think of the term gold digger, which I, it, it boils my blood when I hear people like, especially like men calling a girl a gold digger. And it's like, you literally design the system where she has no rights or capabilities to take care of herself without the help of a man who can provide. And yet you want to punish her for trying to make sure that her well-being and the safety of her and her children is like intact. So like when you kind of went on that rant, I was like, this is how I feel about when people use that term. It's like, we, we don't know what it's like for women who would lose everything if it if it got found out that they were cheating on their husband or trying to leave but they might be in the most unhealthy abusive situation ever and like it's not on us to decide and I just love you know if yeah. you're using this term like don't feel attacked but know that there are better ways to use your language and language really shapes the way that we feel about yes. ourselves and the world and so mm-hmm. like Put this little lesson in your pocket. I'm really glad that we had it. Today. Uh-huh. Me too. I want to say one other thing, which sorry if people don't like this, but deal with it, which is that consensual non-monogamy to me is also a problematic term. And I've been talking to Amy Moores, who is the uh, head of the consensual non-monogamy task force of the American Psychological Association. And I've been we've been having Ooh. these really interesting conversations Um which I also have with my friend um, who's uh, it's sex nerd podcast, Dr. Victoria Hartman. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about, there are so many instances when what we call consensual non-monogamy isn't consensual. Here's the biggest example that I can think of. Your partner says, is being very honorable and saying, I'm sorry, but monogamy is too hard for me. I can't do it. And you don't want to leave the relationship. And so you agree to it. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, because, and you're not into it, and you're sad about it, and it's problematic for you. Is that really consensual? Right? right? Consent yeah. should be enthusiastic. And um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. I, I question that. such a good that. point. And back to the other thing, and and it, my hesitancy around consensual, that term non-monogamy, intersects or dovetails with my uh, concern about the term ethical non-monogamy. Like sometimes you're having sex with somebody who's being dishonest. Many times um, I've had people who uh, are, quote, consensually, unquote, non-monogamous, tell me that they cheated, they broke the rules, they're not disclosing what they're really doing. Is that ethical? And is your partner consenting to it? So I think it's just easier to say, in an ideal world, we would just say non-monogamous. And we would not draw huge distinctions about it. But, you know, people need to feel morally superior. And people need to feel that they're different from other people. And people need to set themselves apart. We live in an individualistic culture. So there's that going on. Um, But like you said, words are powerful. So could we just call it overt non-monogamy and covert non-monogamy and just get over ourselves. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. We're going to make an infographic about this for the episode (laughs) for sure, because even I'm learning, like, I really, really love this conversation. I think it's so important. I did not know we were going to talk about this and this makes me so happy. That's why I love doing the podcast. It's like, there are always these gems, like I can have a plan, but then we go somewhere that I'm like, Wow. Wasn't okay, expecting yes. this that. This is so beneficial. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I, I agree. So I want to talk about your current work because I think if you listen to the show, you already know all the things about, you know, non-monogamies and maybe the how-tos and the offerings that we have. And, you know, mm-hmm. Wednesday, I think your your work and your research, what we covered today is so much more important because people have never had like that before. Um, and you are writing another book. And so yes. I want to I wanna talk about that a bit, especially as someone who's – I'm going through a major life change right now. I'm, mm. We just found out that we are pregnant via <gasps> surrogate but expecting twins. <gasps> wow, that's a lot of big news at the same time, <laughs> I'm yes, sure, for yes. you. It was, it was intentional. We did put yeah. in two embryos with the hope, but still you, when it happens, you're like, oh, shit, this is happening. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and I so just congratulations for, for people who might not, to you. Thank guys. you, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, we chose to have a surrogate because I had a hysterectomy ten years ago. Okay, and around Got the time it. that I was 
having that surgery, yeah, I sort of had the choice to keep my ovaries because, mm. you know, they hadn't gone in yet. So they, they weren't sure if it had spread. And like, I feel lucky that, you know, with my surgery, everything was contained to the cervix oh. and got to keep my ovaries. So I didn't go through an early menopause. And then I was able okay. to extract eggs and, you know, now oh, okay. we're able to start this family. Yeah. But menopause was actually a concern of mine at 28. And I was like, yeah. this is a like something that I wouldn't have to have to think about for another 20, who knows, maybe 30 years. Okay. Now I'm 38. I'm about to have kids and wow. maybe even feeling some um, early symptoms that my doctor yeah. did say that I might experience because my ovaries don't have their own blood supply. Okay. And so I feel like this is like a conversation <laughs> that I'm not yet realizing how interested I'm going to be in very oh, soon. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's well, first of all, I'm sorry that you went through that. And I'm very inspired about your positive mindset. And I love babies. So I will come hold your babies. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm excited um, about that. And I appreciate it. I always say, like, honestly, that that chapter of my life was the biggest blessing ever. And wow. it really has given me everything I have today and I wouldn't change it for the world. So I appreciate oh, it. But also wow. it was like a beautiful journey. Yeah. That's an incredible thing to hear. Thank you for telling me that. I'm very honored to to have you share that with me. Uh, what? So yeah. Okay. So you will be in this situation that so many women are now because we delay childbearing. It's a thing that women tend to do when we enter the workforce and uh, we tend to delay childbearing into our 30s, our 40s, some women into their 50s. So what you're going to maybe suggesting that you might experience is you'll be raising kids while going through perimenopause, right? So that'll be uh, just, it's just so good to have the word perimenopause, uh, to know that mostly women researchers are really trying to move the needle and get more accurate information out into the world about menopause and perimenopause. Um, but yeah, it was interesting that you started having these concerns earlier in your life. And I think it's really going to benefit you. I wanted to say that. Um, so I moved to Los Angeles when I was 55 years old. I'm 57 now. And I really, at the age of 55, moved into an ecology where women are supposed to be fuckable according to straight male standards or dead, right? They're like, just yeah. go away. No in between. Shut the fuck up. Um, and what I realized is my 50s were very different from what anybody told me they would be. Um, in my 50s, I had a huge career success on the edge of 50. I stopped, I, I had stopped drinking at age 47. I have 10 years of sobriety, but I didn't really start working a program as we call it uh, until recently. Um, my husband and I decided to open up our marriage and we decided to be in a living apart together relationship where I'm in Los Angeles and he's in New York. So I found myself married and dating in Los Angeles, which is an ecology extremely hostile to women my age. And I was having the time of my freaking life. You know, I dated a guy who was 30 when I was 56, and we had so much fun together. Um, I really, because of my program, my Al-Anon and AA program, I really started expecting more of friendships. 
um, all my work on myself was coming together. Um, my kids, I didn't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. So sex was purely recreational for me now. My kids had fledged. Uh, so I had all this time and space that I hadn't had before when I was in the heavy lifting phase of motherhood. I was suddenly free in ways that I had never been free before. And I was reborn in my 50s. And I was so free. So I'm writing this book called Free Agent. And what I learned in the course of researching Free Agent is that women in our 50s are not who we were told we would be. Uh, this experience is not what we were taught that was the experience that we were going to have. We're not shriveled and dried up. Uh, we're insisting that doctors and medicine take menopause seriously because most of us want to have fulfilling sex lives going into our 60s and beyond. And um, we're not who we were told we would be. We're not who you think we are. And we're not sorry. Um, you know, and untrue is a very, it's a polemic about how for women, especially uh, being in our 50s, it's a decade of daring and doing. I call it the age of audacity. Women make these incredible decisions. They make the decision uh, to, for example, it's women in their 50s who most often, if they are sexually fluid, they act on it and they pivot from being with a man for maybe 30 years to being with a woman. Um, it's a time when women are most likely to start their own business and they're twice as likely to succeed as younger people. It's a time, it's a decade when women are much more likely to ask for a divorce. Um, it's a decade where women are making these choices uh, that not only affect them, but that are altering the whole social fabric. So I dug into the data once I, once I saw, this is what I do a lot in my books. I, I'm having this experience and I say, well, I feel like a total weirdo, am I? And then I dive into the data. And what I usually discover is that our mating and relating and social strategies and maternal strategies uh, are usually um, you know, not what we have been taught they should be and must be. And so it was really a revelation and such a delight to realize that my 50s have been my best decade ever. So that's what my new book is about. And it's also about oh. being an anthropologist in Los Angeles, which has some of the most messed up ideas about gender and aging and sexuality that I've ever heard. <laughs> Yeah, welcome to the fold over here. Yeah. I'm about to leave in a couple of years. But oh, you I, are? I, I have... love LA, but it is a weird, wild place to study uh, social practices and social and sexual strategies. Wild. Yeah, I bet. Um, I actually wanted to ask you this because I don't know, and I'm sure people are wondering too, in your research, I mean, I know that you've, you know, conducted a lot of interviews on your own. Do you also do like, I'm not a researcher, so I'm going to butcher all this language, but like okay. wide, big surveys or yes, do you tap into very a lot of other people's research? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, as you probably saw in Untrue and Untrue, I distilled and synthesized over 250 studies about uh, female sexuality uh, across cultures and species. Every, at Primates of Park Avenue, did a very deep dive into the evolution of childhood, 
um, into women and substance abuse into like, so there's always a lot of social science in my books, but my job, I am a social scientist and a storyteller. So my job is to go out there and find the science and social science that has life altering implications, particularly for women and wrap it, put it in a delicious wrapper of storytelling so that it is accessible and that, and so that people can use social science as a tool to improve their lives. Otherwise the social science is just like sitting there in a vault. And one of the best examples I have of like, how social science can literally change your life is this. Now that we know, I'm holding up my little model of the human female clitoris. Now that we know how extensive it is, we know that there are better ways for your partner to perform oral sex on you, right? If you lift one or both of your legs up and they're perpendicular to you, you get a lot more stimulation than you would if your legs are down and their head is between your legs, because now we know the clitoris is extensive. So now we know the better position to stimulate it. So, right, because we have this science about what the human female clitoris is and how extensive it is, we know how to improve your sex life. Just be perpendicular to the person, the, the clit have you're going down on instead of, uh, you know, being parallel or under between that person's legs, right? That yeah. is a huge shift in your pleasure and it comes from science. But the science was buried for a long time. So my job is to get that science out there so that it can change your life and improve it. And one of my biggest agendas is to help women feel less weird about who they are with science and data. It's one thing if you say to a woman, oh, no, no, honey, it's okay if you want to be non-monogamous. That's normal. It's another thing if you back it up with 250 studies in peer-reviewed, uh, excuse me, peer-reviewed journals, um, you know, about the social and sexual behavior of non-human primates, about uh, the, from sexology journals, from medical journals, that's a much more powerful way, at least for me, in my view, to validate women's experiences than to simply tell them, I, it's okay, you be you. To me, it's very important that when it comes to behaviors that are stigmatized and when we're dealing with the population, women who have been co coerced and controlled about their sexuality and uh, you know, black and brown women, even more than white women, it's really important to give them data and say, see, here's the proof that there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. I feel <laughs> sure. like that, that is amazing, an amazing place to put like a little cap on this for now yes. because I know that you'll be back on the show. I feel like there's so many things left, like so many stones left unturned. Um, I guess one last question that I have for you, and thank you so, so much for sharing all of this with, with us, because I know people are going to benefit so much from this interview because they're just going to start to question everything that they've ever been taught or heard or that's learned. What your work, that's um, what your work is about. That's what's mm -hmm. so admirable about what you do. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I, I did want to know, are you ever going to come back with a podcast? And, and if not, what can we expect beyond this book? How can we get more of, you know, the incredible yeah. work that you do? Thank you. That's so sweet of you to ask. I've actually been talking to a friend of mine who's also sober 
about doing a podcast on on sex and socializing and sobriety. And um, so we're in the beginning stages of doing that. And I've been doing uh, some podcasts. I did one podcast with Emily Morris, Sex with Emily, Mm -hmm. uh, who has a new book coming out, which is really exciting, called Smarter Sex. And she and I are planning to do more podcasts, including Emily and I are both in our 50s. So we're, we're thinking about doing some podcast episodes about that. So you can look for me there and I might come back with a podcast myself and you can always follow me on Instagram. I'm doing a lot more videos on there now. I love Dr. Jana's videos where where she, it's just great to see her talking about sex. So inspired in part by that, um, I'm doing more of that now. So people can find me there as well. And of course they can, check out my books and on Instagram, I'm at Wednesday Martin PhD. Perfect. Thank you again, Dr. Wednesday Martin. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) That makes me so happy. There you have it. That is a wrap on Dr. Wednesday Martin. I'm so honored that she came on the show, and I hope you learned as much as I did from her brilliance and her work. As always, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It means so much to me. I love hearing from you. Drop an anonymous question in our Asking for a Friends box on our website, openlatepodcast.com, and I'll see you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.